Go ahead and take your Bible tonight. Uh, I want to pick up where I left off last Wednesday night. If you remember, if you weren't here, I'll bring you up to speed. But we're in a study of Revelation on Wednesday nights. And so we've come to chapter 6. And I felt it best to sort of take a time out between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of our study through Revelation and really provide just some overall uh, teaching on the subject of prophecy. And from chapter 6 on in our study of Revelation, it's, I think this will be helpful in terms of interpretation because I hold to the view that everything from really chapter 6 through chapter 19 in the book of Revelation deals with events that are, that'll happen in the tribulation period leading all the way up to the second coming of Jesus. And so someone says, well, how do you come to that interpretation? Well, you have to remember we're bringing uh, to bear all that we already know from other passages in Scripture as far as prophecy is concerned. Now, you know that when the Bible was written, it was written over a period of roughly 15, 1,600 years. Nearly 40 different human authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's ultimately the author of Scripture. But the Scripture has been given in sort of a progressive way as far as redemptive history is concerned, as far as prophecy is concerned. And so really, a good understanding of Revelation, it begins with a healthy understanding of the promises of God made way back in the Old Testament. When you ultimately consider what God's plan is for redemption, what it is for the universe, the plan that God has in mind for uh, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, what does God still have in mind for Israel? And so for that reason, we're just sort of taking a time out and just dealing with all things prophetic uh, just by way of some, uh, I, I want you to understand there's some other viewpoints as far as eschatology, That's the word we keep coming back to, which means the doctrine of last things, the study of last things. So all of this is important, and and you would agree with me that people are generally interested when it comes to knowing the future. They're interested in it. Uh, I read somewhere where people spend nearly a billion dollars every year on consulting psychics, horoscopes, and palm readers. (laughs) To no avail, mind you, okay? That's a billion dollars that could have been used in some other more noble purpose. But just last year, Google searches on phrases like this, the end of the world, Siri was asked questions, how close are we to the apocalypse? All of those questions really at an all-time high. And you know, humanity has always been curious about the future and has tried to predict it and speculate about what it all holds. And so we want to know, are we living in the last days? How close are we to the return of Jesus Christ? And so perhaps more than at any other time in our lives, all of these questions have been on our mind, especially this last year. And yet, keep in mind the fact that the future, it's not so much a matter of knowing what, as much as it is a matter of knowing who. Who? The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Listen to this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. So God is saying, I declare what's going to happen before it's even happened. Which means that he is the God who is sovereign over history. Now think about this. An omniscient God knows precisely what's up ahead. Omniscient means he has all knowledge. An omnipresent God is already there. (laughs) Now, Now think about that one for just a second. He's not the God who is only present now, but in, in this, he, listen, he's in the future, he's in the past, he's present. That's why when he reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am the I am. I am the I am. So the future is certain, certain because God's already there. So an omniscient God knows precisely what's up ahead. An omnipresent God is already there. And an omnipotent God is in control of it all. He has all power. And so there's nothing going on in man's world 
There's not one rogue molecule in the universe outside of God's sovereign control. He's omnipotent. And so when you think about this, this really ought to provide you with a sense of confidence as you live your life as a believer, especially when the bottom falls out of your life. It was Corey Ten Boom who said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And that's just a good word. And that's why prophecy and a study of prophecy is so helpful. Some folks say, well, it's not practical. And I would beg to differ because it's very practical, especially as it relates to us living our lives with confidence. And so what we're dealing with is really just sort of a framework of interpretation that a person begins with and how it impacts the way that he or she understands the content of Revelation. And so we've just been sort of giving you a 30,000 foot overview of Bible prophecy and all things considered. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the foundation of Bible prophecy, the foundation of it, okay? Um, You know, the old saying, curiosity killed the cat. (laughs) We're curious when it comes to prophecy, but we need to make sure that our curiosity doesn't lead us into the weeds. Uh, We don't want to approach a book like Revelation and insert meaning into that book that's not really there. Newspaper exegesis is what some folks refer to this as. They read a headline and automatically insert that headline into the Bible. And so they read the Bible through the filter of the news rather than reading the news through the filter of the Bible. Okay, so we want to be good students of God's Word, which is why it's important that we understand the foundational issues. And some of those that we've talked about had to do with the practicality of prophecy for the most part. We need to realize just how practical it is as far as life is concerned. And we talked about how it's a major part of the overall message of the Bible. At least 27% of the Bible is prophecy. I'm just going to get through this quick because I covered this a couple weeks ago. Blessing is promised to the one who reads prophecy and, and who obeys its message. Revelation 1 verse 3, there's a special promise attached to those who read, who study, who hear the message of this prophecy, the book of Revelation read out loud. And Jesus is the subject of prophecy. You ought to be interested in it because it points to Jesus. And in fact, we ought to be interested in anything that points us to our Lord. And so it's a means of worship. And it really gives us a proper perspective as far as life is concerned. Um, And that's something that we always need, especially when we're dealing with stuff. When we're in the thick of it in life and we tend to lose our sense of perspective and you want to throw your hands up and quit, (laughs) you get frustrated. Remembering the big picture of where prophecy points to and the fact that history is his story and that God is in control, this gives us proper perspective in life. And something to consider is those who ought to be passionate witnesses for Jesus, we wanna see people come to know the Lord. So prophecy is a really helpful tool for evangelism, perhaps a better tool now than ever before, especially as people are wondering, what in the world is going on? Why is, is society in the shape that it's in? Well, you and I know the answers to those kinds of questions, and so we should have questions and um, conversations with people, and and we don't want to argue for the sake of arguing, but we'll point people to Jesus and to our Lord, and prophecy gives us that kind of confidence. Now, we would say this. It wouldn't matter how well we know Bible prophecy. We could know it forwards and backwards and all the definitions and all the important passages, But if it didn't motivate us to live a godly life, it would be to no effect in my life. It would be to no avail. And so we'd be wasting our time if all this did was just fill our heads full of facts rather than our heart full of faith and motivate us to live a godly life. So this is practical for this reason. It it promotes discipleship. And ultimately it reveals the sovereignty of God over both time and history. So that's the practicality, that's a foundational issue, the practicality of Bible prophecy. And then we talked about the interpretive principles. And this is another foundational issue as far as prophecy is concerned. How how do you interpret 
the book of Revelation? How do you interpret prophetic symbolism? You know, what's, what's the key there? And those are questions uh, in the field of hermeneutics. And someone says, Herman who? <laughs> no, hermeneutics. It's a word that means Bible interpretation. It comes from a Greek word, hermeneuo, which means to interpret. And so all of us do that when we read and study our Bible, whether we call it that or not. And so we just want to make sure that we're using sound principles of Bible interpretation. And someone says, well, what is the best method for doing that? Well, realize that different believers throughout history have approached it a little bit differently uh, in the, uh, I don't know, early history of the church through the Middle Ages. The allegorical method was a very popular method for interpreting Bible prophecy. Allegory meant that it was, it, there was some kind of hidden meaning. And, and you know what allegory is. Uh, how many of you have read the, Pil- the Pilgrim's Progress? You know, the Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan. It's an allegorical story, you know, that is told to sort of reinforce, you know, Christian principles or truth. Here you have Christian, he's making his way through the world on his way to the celestial city, having fled the city of destruction. It's really just an allegory of the Christian life. That's what the Pilgrim's Progress, that book's all about. Revelation is not allegory. We know that much because the scripture says that it's prophecy. It's prophecy. So we don't spiritualize it. We don't don't come up with some kind of symbolic meaning and attach meaning to it that's not there. And so the best method for interpreting prophecy, it's the same method of interpretation that you apply elsewhere in scripture, known as just the grammatical historical interpretation which is just another fancy way of saying, just let the book say what the book says. You know, uh, when you come to a passage, the plain sense of the passage, just let it, listen, it's, it's the main sense, okay? You say, what if it don't make sense? <laughs> well, you rely upon the Holy Spirit for that, but again, keep in mind that this is something that the Lord, as far as the big picture, he wants us to know what prophecy ultimately is pointing us to. So those interpretive principles, these were from Mark Hitchcock. I gave these to you, but quickly, you've got interpret prophecy literally. For the symbolism, look for built-in interpretation. A lot of passages have explanation within the passage. You just need to study it out and look for it. The third, compare parallel passages. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, which is what we're going to do tonight. We started doing that last Wednesday night. Because we're going back into the book of Daniel and we're seeing how God showed Daniel some things ultimately that point to the, the future and the tribulation period, Antichrist, God's future plan for his people. And so we want to interpret scripture in light of scripture. Something else, keep the time intervals in mind. Uh, you say, what do you mean? Well, often prophecy... Uh, For example, you see verses where um, the prophets have foretold the coming of the Messiah. Uh, For example, Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. When was that fulfilled? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Well, the very next phrase is, and the government will be upon his shoulders, So we know now there's a gap as far as time is concerned between the Lord's first advent and his second advent. He came first to suffer and die for the sins of his people, to open up a way of salvation. He's building his church. And yet we know when he comes again, the second coming, the government's going to be upon his shoulders because he'll be the government. And he'll establish his kingdom upon the earth. So keep time intervals in mind. And then distinguish between fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. Just for example, the book of Daniel. Uh, we, I, I showed you last week how much of what was revealed to Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar, his dream, his vision of future world empires. We're able to look back and see how much of that has been fulfilled with the exception of that one final empire or system of government that will be in place when Christ comes. Okay, so distinguish between fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. 
So foundational principles realize the immense practicality of prophecy. Keep in mind the interpretive principles and then remember the important passages. The important passages. So again, this is, this is helpful for us as we approach the book of Revelation, how we, how we study it, how we interpret it. There's some important passages to keep in mind before we make our way to Revelation chapter 6. Okay? And the first of those, of course, being the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel is very strategic in that it describes events that will happen in the last days. Daniel's practical, but it's also prophetic. And that's interesting because the Bible always makes a connection between prophecy and living a godly life. And this is especially true of the book of Daniel. Okay, now, as far as the prophecy is concerned, there are several sections in Daniel that reveal God's prophetic program for the world. And, and we're looking at three of these in particular, okay? The first of which was Daniel chapter 2, okay? So you're there in Daniel, uh, maybe just flip to Daniel chapter 2. I'll let you just put your eyes on this chapter for a moment. But Daniel 2, this is, this is um, many have referred to Daniel 2 as the ABCs of Bible prophecy because it contains the most basic outline of the times of the Gentiles, which Jesus referred to, the times of the Gentiles. You say, what's that mean? Well, it's the time in which Gentiles would dominate and control the city of Jerusalem. So from the Babylonian captivity leading all the way up until the return of Jesus Christ are the times of the Gentiles. And so Daniel chapter 2 reveals a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had in which he saw a multi-metallic man, an image of a man made up of different types of metals. And I don't know if you picked this up when you, last week. You may want to pull it out of your Bible if you brought this with you in your notes. If not, I've got some extra copies here. So maybe a couple of you want to walk around if anybody needs a copy of this chart. Okay. <clears throat> but on one side of this uh, paper, you've got, you've got the, the image that's described in Daniel chapter 2. A head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, the legs are made of iron, the feet, it's a mixture of iron and clay. As far as the dream goes in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the dream sees a stone. It's cut out of a mountainside. It crashes into the image at its feet, thereby demolishing the entire thing. It smashes it to pieces. The wind blows the pieces away, but the stone that shattered the image becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And so Daniel interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel tells the king that the four different metals in the image represented Gentile world empires that would rule over Israel in succession, beginning with Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, is, this is represented with the head of gold, okay? Um, following Babylon would be the Medes and the Persians, this is the silver, the arms of silver, the chest. The Medo-Persian Empire would fall to Alexander's Greek Empire, the Greeks, symbolized by the belly and thighs of bronze. The Greek Empire would be replaced by the Roman Empire, which is symbolized by the legs of iron. All right, now the feet and, and the toes are made up of sort of a mixture of clay and iron and is very, very brittle. Now, again, the 10 toes, this also is going to point to something. And we'll be given a little bit further information in chapter 7. But this feet, this iron clay mixture, points to some final world empire that largely is going to emerge out of the remnants of the Roman Empire. 
And many prophecy scholars see that as being sort of Western-style democracies, a coalition of Western nations in the last days. We think about our own country. You think it's about so many countries in the European Union and how so much of their systems of government ultimately look back to Rome as some type of model in terms of a, a republic. And so anyway, what about the stone? What about the mountain? Well, Daniel says that this is, this is a picture of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will fill the whole earth as it swallows up all of the kingdoms of man, replaces the fallen kingdoms of man. Okay, so imagine what that would have looked like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the stone strikes the statue at its weakest point. Now something else to consider is just sort of the depreciating value of the metals. What begins with gold gives way to a cheaper metal, silver gives way to a cheaper metal, bronze gives way to a cheaper strong metal, iron, which gives way to a really cheap iron clay mixture that just doesn't hold together. In fact, what's interesting, now, <laughs> this is wearology. So you can, you know, so that I don't get to do this on Sunday, but I can do this on Wednesday where we're just talking amongst ourselves. But many have said that, you know, this final world empire, one thing that Daniel 2 says about it, it won't hold together, it's an iron clay mixture. And, and, Many have wondered what makes this final world system so very brittle. And Daniel 2 talks about how uh, there'll be really uh, sort of insinuates even cultural division that will, that, will, that will rage within this own final world empire. <laughs> so anyway, we won't elaborate that on that anymore. Let the reader understand. All right, so that's Daniel 2. Now, Daniel 7 is the second important passage. And this is a vision that Daniel himself has that God gives to Daniel. And Daniel sees four beasts emerge from the sea. There's a winged lion. He sees a bear raised up on one side. He sees a four-winged leopard. And then something that he describes as being a terrifying beast with iron teeth and ten horns. And in this vision, Daniel sees another little horn appear among the ten horns, replacing three. And then the vision gives way to a throne room scene as Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sit down to judge, and he's attended by millions of angels. The fourth beast is destroyed, as well as the little horn. And Daniel then sees someone that he describes as being the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven who appears, he approaches the Ancient of Days, and he's given authority and an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so you can read that in Daniel chapter seven. So you see these two visions and you compare them side by side, the one that Nebuchadnezzar, the dream he has in chapter two versus the vision that Daniel is given in chapter seven, and you'll notice that they cover essentially the same ground, but from two different perspectives. One is from man's point of view, the other is from the divine point of view. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, he sees a man made up of valuable metal. But from the divine point of view, God looks at the governments of man and he sees beasts. He describes them with beast-like characteristics. And that's an appropriate description, especially from the, the divine point of view when you consider the fact that man's governments, the very best of man's governments, have all been flawed. Every form of government that man has turned to, whether it be you know, monarchy, whether it be an oligarchy, whether it be democracy, whether it be a dictatorship, all of this, flaws emerge, and I think that it's by divine design showing that man cannot perfectly rule himself because of sin. Man's world is so corrupted by sin. Man's governments are corrupted by sin. And sin has a corrosive effect, a corrupting effect. And so this vision in chapter seven, this is governments from the divine perspective. 
So you put these two chapters together, the prophetic picture becomes more clear. The times of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian Empire, roughly 605 B.C., followed by the Persians, which replaced Babylon in 539 B.C. The Persians were then overthrown by Alexander and the Greek Empire, roughly 334. Greece is succeeded by Rome, which lasted all the way up till roughly 476 A.D. And Daniel 2, Daniel 7 seem to identify that fourth beast with Rome and what emerges out of Rome in the last days. And the little horn that's referred to in chapter 7, most Bible scholars, prophecy scholars see this pointing to the Antichrist, someone who will rule in the last days and his rule will be short-lived and he will emerge out of a coalition of 10 nations led by 10 world leaders and he'll emerge as the dominant leader in the last days. Okay, now, all of that to simply bring us to chapter nine. Chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. I do want you to turn there because this is the third important passage in Daniel And it's often been referred to as the backbone of Bible prophecy. Now, when I worked through the book of Daniel last year, we spent at least three weeks on Sunday working through this prophecy. And we've all slept since then, so it's important to just kind of remind ourselves of what is being revealed. But essentially, it tells us that God has put Israel's future on a time clock. And God gives Daniel a vision of what the future will hold especially for Israel, and this vision that he's given, this word that he's given at the end of chapter nine is really a response to a time of prayer earlier in the chapter. Now Daniel, he's in Babylon where the Jews had been in exile for nearly 70 years, and he knows from reading the prophecies of Jeremiah that the captivity will only last 70 years. Jeremiah had, had revealed this more than a generation before, even before the captivity, okay? So Daniel, in chapter nine, the first 23 verses or so, he's praying, he's confessing the sin of the nation, he's praying for the restoration of the nation, he knows that the time of captivity is nearing its end, and so he's interceding on Israel's behalf. Now, while he's doing that, God sends the angel Gabriel with an answer, And the answer that Daniel is given in chapter nine is the prophecy of the 70 weeks. The 70 weeks, okay? Now, what Daniel has shown, it goes far beyond the restoration of the people from Babylon and goes all the way to Israel's ultimate and final restoration under their coming Messiah and his kingdom. And folks, I'm telling you, if you remember this from our time in Daniel nine, This is one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible as it relates to the future coming of Christ. It's such a specific prophecy that Sir Isaac Newton said of this passage. He said, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone made five centuries before Christ. Okay? So the visions that Daniel has had through the end of chapter 7 You think about what we were talking about with chapter two, with chapter seven, this deals primarily with Gentile world empires. The way that history is going to go from Daniel's time all the way up until the time of the end. But from chapter eight and beyond, the focus turns away from the Gentiles and is turned toward Israel and the Jewish people. Okay, so the prophecy that's found in the last four verses of chapter nine presents us with the plan that God has in mind for Israel's future, okay? So, I've given you a chart of this. If you wanna look on the back page of that um, um, chart, the one at the bottom, the chart at the bottom is sort of a chart of this prophecy from Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, Okay, so you can look at that. I'll come back to that if I have time in just a moment. Let's walk through this prophecy. Notice that it involves a prayer to begin with. 
The chapter opens up. The people of God are in captivity. It's around 539 B.C. Daniel and the Jews have been in Babylon for 67 years or more. So he's reading the scriptures when something in the scroll of Jeremiah got his attention. Jeremiah, the prophet, had warned the nation of a coming judgment that God's people would be carried away into captivity. And Jeremiah was specific and said that God's people would be there 70 years. And Daniel had lived through almost all of those years. So as he's reading, he discovers that the end of those 70 years is close. And he reads of God's promise to visit his people and restore them to their land at the end of the captivity. Uh, He's probably reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 10, which says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then you know verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I guarantee you some of you have written Jeremiah 29, 11 as a Bible verse on a birthday card to your grandchildren. But did you realize that it's given in connection with God's promise to bring his people out of the captivity? He has a very real purpose behind the captivity. It's disciplinary. It's judgment because of idolatry. Yet God's not going to throw his people away. He's going to honor his promises. He's going to keep his word. He's going to bring them back into the land out of which he had driven them. So Daniel's reading that, and he realizes that it's time for God to bring the Jews back to their land, back to Jerusalem, back to what God had promised. He knew that Babylon was going to be handed over to another the empire, they were going to be judged by God themselves. Daniel knew that. He knew that the end of the 70 years, there would be the destruction of Babylon. That had happened. And yet there would be a restoration for God's people. And so he's reading this in the books. And he's, it affected him so deeply. You know what he does? He hits his knees. Have you ever been just so gripped by a promise of God that you've been reading in Scripture that you just hit your knees in prayer? You just had to hit your knees. You had to get on your face before God because what you read in the Word, what the Holy Spirit reminded you from the Word about the character of God, the promises of God, it just so moved you within your spirit that you just had to respond in faith and worship and prayer. So that's what Daniel's doing. Which, by the way, nothing is more important right now than our intercession for our country. Nothing is more pressing right now for us, I believe, than to intercede for our congregation. The enemy wants to trip us up. He wants to divide us. He wants to distract us. He wants us to live our lives without joy and without confidence. And so it's important that we stay in the word, that we abide in Christ, that we spend time in both private prayer, corporate prayer, praying for one another because ultimately this is how we remain focused. So Daniel's praying, and there's an interruption to his prayer. While he's praying, he says the angel Gabriel is dispatched with an answer. (laughs) When Gabriel shows up, it usually is always to announce some news that God is up to something as far as his plan of redemption is concerned. It's Gabriel who comes with this plan, this, this message, God's about to do something. Gabriel does the same thing. with Mary and Joseph and the, the events leading up to the birth of Christ. But why had Gabriel come? Well, if you look at verse 22 in Daniel 9, Daniel says that he made me understand, speaking with me, and says, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. That word insight means to have comprehension, to grasp the truth of something. The word understanding refers to perception, to see into something. So so Gabriel has come so that Daniel can comprehend something so that he can see into something. And it's interesting to me that this insight from God comes only after Daniel has spent time in the Word and on his knees in prayer. 
And how often do we, I'm about to preach, how often do we need God to give us some kind of insight into some decision we've got to make, into some issue going on in our life, and we wonder why that insight hasn't come. Let me ask you the question, have we really been in our Bibles? Have we really been on our face praying? Daniel is worshiping, Daniel is praying, and God sends Gabriel with an answer. And God has come, or Gabriel has come to give him insight. So, words of reassurance are given to Daniel. You get into verse 23, the very moment he began to plead for mercy, a word goes out. Gabriel had come with a message. Daniel was greatly loved. And he says, Daniel, your prayers have been heard. I've come to give you this insight. Consider the word, understand the vision. In other words, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Okay, so that's the prayer that's involved. But what about the purpose, ultimately, that's involved? Because in verse 24, Gabriel summarizes what the overall purpose is that will be accomplished by God after these 70 weeks have passed. Okay, so verse 24, here's here's the prophecy. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. And to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, now that's the prophecy. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here. Notice that he mentions a specific period of time that's marked out by God. He says 70 weeks are decreed there in verse 24. That word decreed, this comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut or to divide. And the idea is that the time period has been divided out because God has determined it. That is, God has decreed a block of time in which he will accomplish some things as far as his redemptive purpose is concerned. So 70 weeks are decreed or cut out by God and it will happen this way because God says it will happen this way. Okay, so it's a specific period of time. And by the way, I'll come to this in just a second. Weeks, don't think in terms of seven day periods of time. Literally, the text says 77s. And context is going to show how these 77s, these are 77-year periods. Okay? So keep that in mind. Now, the prophecy is directly related to the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. That's something else to consider because the angel tells Daniel in verse 24, these 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, so Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So this is not Gentile prophecy. This doesn't have to do with the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks or the other Gentile nations. No, God has cut out of the calendar a period of time in which he's going to do something on behalf of his people. And then notice the total scene that's been revealed It will last 70 weeks or 77s. So God has decreed these. He's divided them up into three periods. You have seven followed by 62 and then one. Okay? So you're reading this for the first time. You're under the impression that week refers to seven days. Someone says, I'll see you in three weeks. I'll see you in two weeks. You you automatically interpret that, I'll see you in 14 days, right? That's not what's going on here. 77s, 77-year time periods. 
Okay, so if you go back to, to verse two, earlier in the chapter, keep in mind, Daniel's been reading, he's been thinking about the 70 year captivity. 70 years had been determined for Judah's captivity. And those years represented 490 years of Israel's failure to observe the Sabbath law that required the land to lay fallow every seventh year. So the sabbatical year, the seventh year, Israel was to let their fields lay fallow. The law of Moses specified this in Leviticus chapter 25, okay? But the people of Israel had ignored all of this. And so part of their judgment as far as the Babylonian captivity was concerned, there was one year of captivity for every Sabbath year that the people had ignored. You gotta understand that. Second Chronicles chapter 36 says this much, uh, that, that Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Listen to this to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So Daniel understands this from scripture, but see, here's where he's in for a real shock, because instead of dealing with the 490 years in the past, God was going to give him a glimpse into 490 years into the future, and these are broken down into 77 year or seven year time periods. Okay, now, I know it's kinda hard to just keep in mind, but you have to, you have to see this here. Okay, so, at the end of these 77s, these 77 year time periods, there are six objectives that God is going to have accomplished. Verse 24, what are those objectives? Well, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Those are the objectives. Okay, so all of this is the big picture of what God is going to accomplish during the 70 weeks. At the end, God will have completely dealt with sin. He will have totally ushered in everlasting righteousness. And folks, I'm telling you, I believe with all of my heart that this points to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which these realities are true now spiritually because of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection, but... When Jesus comes again, you're bothered by all the mess that you see in the world and all of the evil and your heart breaks for people who are in darkness and you wonder what's, let me tell you, when Jesus comes, he's going to deal with it and he's going to usher in everlasting righteousness. Hmm. And then the particulars, and I gotta give you this because my time is gone. The last three verses of chapter nine present us with the particulars, the details of this prophecy, how it's going to come about. Okay, so 70 weeks, 70 sevens are determined for your people and your holy city. So 70 sevens would represent 400 years of future prophecy. And Daniel is told when it will begin. Verse 25. It would begin from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. There would be a legal decree that allowed for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Now we know that it was Cyrus the Great who allowed the Jews to begin returning home, but the majority of Bible scholars agree that this refers to the decree of King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., and that's recorded for us in Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 2. You remember Nehemiah? cupbearer to the Persian king, had a burden for the city of Jerusalem because the, the exiles had begun returning home, but the city was still in ruins. So what did Nehemiah do? He began to pray just like Daniel before him. He asks God to give him opportunity to have an audience with King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah chapter two, verse seven says that it pleased the king. He granted Nehemiah's request by having official government documents drawn up, drawn up that gave him the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
And then the prophetic clock began ticking. Okay? So the 77s began with this official decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And verse 25 says, Daniel learns it's going to be rebuilt from the inside to the outside, yet during a troubled time. You remember all the opposition that Nehemiah faced while they were building the wall? They had to lay brick with one hand, they had to hold a sword in the other hand because of all the opposition. And so the prophecy then is from the time that the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, Messiah. There will be seven weeks followed by 62 weeks. So you've got these two periods divided. First, you've got seven sevens followed by 62 sevens, which adds up to 69 sevens. So the first seven, it's a 49-year period beginning in 445 B.C. That brings us all the way to 396 B.C. During that time, not only had the Jews returned home, not only had the city of Jerusalem been rebuilt, but it was also the time that the Old Testament scriptures were completed. So it's almost as if God established his people in their land. God established his city. He established the temple. He established his word. And from there to the coming of John the Baptist, there was no prophet. It's almost like there was an intermission in the redemptive plan of God. It's almost as if God is saying, all right, everybody just hush. (laughs) Just hush, because guess what? My son's about to step onto the scene. So based on the Jewish calendar... I'll give you this and then we'll be done. 483 years from the king's decree. That brings us to 33 AD. Or the very day when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Where everyone laid down palm branches and were crying out, Hosanna, the son of David. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Luke chapter 19 tells us how it all happened. So what you have then, you have Jesus being presented to Israel as their true and rightful king, Messiah, just as Daniel had said it would happen. But Luke, as as everyone's crying out, Hosanna, As they're laying down palm branches, Luke adds an interesting detail in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And here's what he said, would that you had known that on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And Jesus said, the days will come upon you when your enemies set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't recognize the time in which their king had come. Yet despite the fact more than five centuries earlier, God had sent Gabriel with the message that specified to the day when the Messiah would be presented to Israel, but they rejected him. How was he rejected? Within a week from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus was betrayed, he was condemned, he was executed on a criminal's cross. And Pilate asked the question, shall I crucify your king? And here was the reply, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus was crucified, he was cut off just as Daniel had foretold all the way back in Daniel chapter nine. And and by the way, this wasn't coincidence. It had to be this way. So that the God's, so that the Gentile bride, so that me and so that you could be grafted into God's redemptive people. God's redeemed people. And so here's here's the issue. Here's what's happened. Here's why Daniel 9 is so very important because it shows how the prophetic clock stops after the 69th week, after the rejection of Messiah. The Jewish temple is destroyed, 70 AD. 
The prophetic clock has stopped. 69 of those prophetic weeks have been fulfilled. There's yet one future seven-year time period that has yet to be fulfilled. And what is that 70th week of Daniel? It's what I believe is the future tribulation period. He said, why have you told us all this? Because I believe that the events of that time period are described in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. So you see how there's a method to my madness these last couple of Wednesday nights. I'm trying to, we've got to understand how we come to this understanding of Revelation. Prophecy. Realize that God's given scripture and he's revealed the things he wants us to know, folks, he's told us. But we got to study it, don't we? We got to study it. Let's stand for prayer tonight. We'll come back next Wednesday night. You know, we won't meet. It's the week of Thanksgiving. But we'll pick back up in a couple of weeks. Because really, there's, there's really one more passage that I think is critical for our understanding of Revelation chapter 6 and the chapters that follow. And it's Matthew 24. It's the Olivet Discourse where Jesus himself described the events that will happen during the tribulation period. So Daniel's 70th week, Jesus describes what that's going to involve and gives details about that in the Olivet Discourse. And that too gives insight into what John is describing in Revelation chapter 6 and the chapters that follow. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and thank you for your faithfulness and that you are the God of history and that from our perspective at times, Lord, it seems like man is ruling the day. The enemy seems to just be having a heyday but Lord, we know that the enemy has been defeated and that we as your people are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Lord, as we know, we're one day closer to the return of Jesus now than we were yesterday. I pray, Lord, that the truth of that really grips our hearts and impacts the way that we live and go about serving you and going to work and leading our families and serving within the church and being salt, being light. God, produce confidence in our hearts and in our lives. May we not be so weighed down by the issues of the day that we lose sight of the big picture. And I pray for these men and women tonight, Lord. I know that so many of them are wrestling with issues in their lives, decisions that they have to make, health concerns, and processing grief. I pray for my brother David right here in front of me tonight, Lord. God, would you just wrap your arms of love and mercy and compassion around him. And thank you for the promise that we have, Lord, that for the believer, we have hope. We have hope. And even so, come Lord Jesus is our prayer and that's our cry. <laughs> So Lord, take these truths, seal them up in our hearts and in our minds and change us and mold us and shape us into the image of your son. And it's in his precious name we pray. And all God's people said together, amen. amen.